I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone. My name is Raymond Antrobus. I am a poet, uh, educator from East London, Hackney, and I'm joined today with the wonderful Jack Underwood, um, who has written not even this, a book we're going to be discussing in detail in the next hour or so. Um, as we discuss, um, there's a chat box open where people can uh, throw in questions of anything that comes up. Um, and then those questions will be fed to me and I may uh, relay them to Jack uh, at the end of the reading. So I'm just going to read uh, Jack's bio very quickly so you get more of a thorough understanding of who he is. Jack Underwood is a poet, writer and critic. His debut collection of poems, Happiness, was published by Faber and Faber in 2015 and was winner of the Somerset Morn Award. He is the recipient of an Eric Gregory Award and a draft of Not Even This was shortlisted for the Creative Nonfiction Prize by the Arts Foundation in 2017. So already an award-winning kind of book before it's even been published. Um, his work has appeared in the Poetry Review, Poetry London, Five Dials and New Statesman, The Observer, TLS Poetry, The White Review and Tate, etc., as well as internationally and in translation. He is senior lecturer in English and creative writing at Goldsmiths College. And his new book of poems, um, In the New Life, is published by Faber in August this year. Yeah, yeah. A year in the new life. Um, I think it's August the 5th. Um, yeah. Yeah, you had a new life, and uh, yeah, I'll, I, we might even get to talk a bit about that as well in this in this session because it seems like there's a there's a connection between this book and your next poetry book. Jack, how you doing, man? I'm good. Yeah, um, the the warm weather's arrived, and that that kind of changes everything. I think <laughs> um, we're currently living um, in a in a one bed flat in southeast London. We um, moved back in um, in February. Um, it's where we lived when Nancy was born and my daughter was born, and um, and then we moved out to and rented somewhere for a bit where we had more space. And now we've now we've returned to a lot less space. So having like a garden as we do, it's like having another room or two to sort of spread out into. So that's really nice. And my academic um, has um, the the main of that has kind of ended now. So I'm not. Yeah, I just I feel like I've come through a. As I, I was saying to the engineer Les, um, that that all the all the stuff I kicked into the the long grass is in the short grass. But at least that's a kind of advancement on on just being like in the grass all the time, which was yeah. how it well, started with you. Really. Uh, let me just congratulate you on writing this book. I thought that this was such a beautiful and brainy book. Something which surprised me actually um and i think it's you know there's a there's a there's an idea that books find you at the right time and there couldn't have actually been a better time for for this book to arrive in my life 
um, as my uh, my son is going to be put, be born in a few in a few months. So I'm about to be a dad for the first time, and I'm like, so I've been reading parenting manuals, and then I was happened to be reading some of that like child psychology and you know mm. how to expect for that kind of stuff. And then you reached out and and invited me to do this review, and I was like. Perfect. This is great. And, I'm, and I, so I enjoyed this more than I did. <laughs> so I thought um, for the audience, if we could kind of get a kind of more of an idea of what the book is about, if you'd be up for reading the preface. The preface was the sort of last thing I wrote, and I sort of didn't want to make it too much of a sort of preemptive defense of the book. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot going on, and I felt like... Um, I didn't need to sort of like clarify what it what it may be for or what it what I was hoping it, it might do. So the, the the main difference between the preface and, and, and the rest of the book you'll um hear is that um this is addressed to the reader directly, whereas the rest of the book is direct directed towards um my daughter in the in the second person. So this is a more of a kind of open um, first person kind of well actually it's a first person directed to a, a second person but um this is a straightforward first person preface not even claims on knowledge are not made through the banishment of uncertainty but by venturing towards it answers include their questions the further you travel into the known the closer you get to its edges for four years, I tried to write a book about uncertainty. It was an unwieldy and potentially endless subject. The more I came to know through my research, the more my lack of knowledge revealed itself. Every time I entered the forecourts of a new specialism, my workaday ignorance was exposed. And the more I sought uncertainty, the more I was forced to see my own life as something corralled into a conceivable and continuous wad through the habitual denial and dampening of reality in all directions. The brain, with its particular and peculiar evolution, is fundamentally limited in its scope. It does not seem that way, but there are things we can apprehend and then things we cannot, and never will. We may sharpen our different languages, improve the accuracy of the tools with which we measure and explore, but we are always learning inwardly, conceiving more and more within the range of the conceivable. Even when looking outwards, our business is refinement. We are knocking on the inner sides of a hull. Beyond that, and forever, the unknowable. As a poet, I'm relatively familiar with these working conditions. After all, the unknowable exerting its negative presence gives rise to the sublime, which poets have always pursued deliberately. Poets are drawn to the unknowable because it is there that we might test and reckon with our machinery, have our minds reblown in glass. Without the unknowable, there would be no poetic, futile reaching, no mooning around on the platform before the castle spoken to by ghosts, no common endeavour or homely reminder of the void in the room, no gawping at our hands just to feel the shock of our proximity to one another when finally we look up. No horizon to the event, no shoring of lines against the white space around them, no shoring of that space against the rest of the world. No maddening, soluble 4am quarry, no singing in search of the songs, no sympathetic group work, no animal 
in the habitat of language, no poems. Philosophers and critical theorists have documented this uncertain predicament for just as long as poets, and they've named it better, and with rigour, review and citation. It feels conceited to even defer to that greater tradition. I'm not a scholar. I've read an armful of their books at best and could not relay, recite or paraphrase what I have read. Nevertheless, I know my own thoughts are in debt. It would be dishonest not to acknowledge that theory and philosophy have not so much changed my life as shown it to me. I'm happy to be sentimental about it. If I have anything to add, then it comes from the back of that vast peloton. Feminist epistemologies of Lorraine Code in particular have given me more of a sense of what it means to be a person, a knower among other knowers, than the work of perhaps any other writer, including the poets. Gratitude and deference do not cover it, but they will have to do. If uncertainty has already been so widely accounted for elsewhere, why reinvent the wheel? The question is an accusation, and whenever it was asked of me directly or indirectly, I did not have an answer. It was my colleague, Nell Stevens, who reminded me that reinventing the wheel is a pretty good description of what writers do. And anyway, the wheel would have been a shit invention if we were only allowed one of them. And I thought, that's true. We will always need another poem, another death poem, another love poem. Uncertainty is not going anywhere because it is our home. I believe that. And I believe that poetry proves it too. What philosophy and theory have taught me, poetry has allowed me to reoccupy. That words and their meanings are produced, reproduced between us. That the definition of a word arises not from its singular presence as a term, but from the recession of all other terms around it, lifting it momentarily into relief, into context. That etymology is the story of a word it has already outgrown. That language does not pour out of me, but is something I have entered. And now I deflect and discover the character and shape of myself by its passing. That meaning is evidence of one's intention to mean, but never exactly what one intends. That meaning is nothing at all without the guesswork and goodwill and hopefulness of humanity, which is eroded when we pretend the situation is otherwise. That knowledge is a remade thing and includes the knower in its making. That the making of the known carries, therefore, an attendant moral responsibility, that we should be careful in our making and remaking. That feelings exist more factually and materially than the names we might give to them. That names are inadequate and always withhold as much as they hold of a thing. The uncertain knowledge that a poem extends to us is a beckoning home. It is certainty, reason, logic knowing that require all the energy, all the desperate rigging up. It is also exhausting, this life of logical refusal. We deserve to allow ourselves to not know. So I kept going with my research, that it might provoke and tilt at the habits of reason, because I wanted to offer uncertainty to others as a respite. And then I became a father. Before our daughter was born, I used to imagine what fatherhood would be like. My fantasies did not include the constant work of parenthood or the realisation that the work will never be done. You realise about week three or four that there is no weekend coming. There is only the child and love and worry today and tomorrow for the rest of your life. I looked at my own parents and felt like a fool, like a child. I'd not seen the literal hours and hours of cleaning up after me, teaching me 
the years of care and patience, their kindness, their fear, their grief at my need to outgrow them, their grief at their need to never be outgrown. I suddenly saw them in terms of that work and I felt ashamed. I didn't know what the fuck I'd been on about. That's how I felt. And then I looked at my own child beginning at her beginning and it shocked me how habitual and calcified and brutish I was by comparison. There I was, her father, continuing to pr produce my little life story, its tangible, working, rolling scenario, walking around inside it like I owned the fucking place. And so, humble and shaken, I underwent an adjustment. It took a while, perhaps two years, but at some point I stopped writing my book about uncertainty and started writing this book about uncertainty instead, a book for her, to her. I have no general thesis about parenting. My experiences of fatherhood do not somehow transcend the particularities of my social and political world. I am straight, white, middle class with a relatively normative gender identity, hardly a neutral position from which to make universal claims. Children are various people. And the parental relationship you have with your specific child person is precisely particular. Even between two parents of the same child, things are so different. I've largely excluded the experiences of Hannah, my co-parent from this book, partly out of respect for her privacy, but mainly because it would be absurd and insulting to pretend for a second that I understand the experience or extent of her work of motherhood. I don't. I look up at it like a penguin at an icebreaker vessel. I try to be useful and kind and above all to show my gratitude and I love her. In order to write a book about parenting and uncertainty from the point of view of a poet, I've had to find my form along the way. Not even this is an essay or essays, and at times it is a poem, a letter, a space for play, a space for confiding. Sometimes I lean on analogy to make connections between ideas, but not always explicitly or with a particular conclusion in mind beyond that which metaphor situates between two things by drawing together their likenesses. Sometimes I lean more heavily on my research and I apologise in advance to the specialists in those fields who may find my descriptions of certain phenomena be simplistic. I've tried to honour accuracy as best as I can while keeping a more general readership in mind. I've also tried to write with honesty about fatherhood the last three years have been very tiring and I did not take many notes. Thank you, Jack. Uncertainty is not going anywhere because it is our home. I think I want to start by asking you that this, this pursuit or this idea of writing into the unknown. And it's, it's strange, it's kind of paradoxical of you need to know something to begin and then you launch off into the uncertain world. And so my first question is, what were the surprises for you in writing this book? I, I just only because I'm assuming that there was some idea of what you would write and like, OK, this is the book. This is the book I would write. I mean, it, I mean you said about how it became something else once you became a father. Can you speak to anything that the, the process of writing this book you know, gave you? Yeah, I think one of the things I was surprised to find was that I actually didn't enjoy writing about fatherhood in relation to these subjects. And that once I started doing that, um, that I found it 
was better than I'd imagined it. Mm. When you're a writer, in particular a poet, I think, and, you, and you're an expecting father, so in your position, Ray, it's not only that you have this inclination to sort of deal with those sort of thoughts and fantasies and imaginary, the, the, the future that lies ahead. Also, other people are like, oh, I can't wait to read your baby poems, you know, and you kind of feel like, come on, like, I'm a poet, I've got an imagination, I can write about anything, you know, I don't, don't sort of, don't oblige me to this narrow idea of, of, of like, of, it feels like, a, like being put in a cupboard, you know, and so I was equally resistant to do that with the uncertainty book, but it wasn't selling. I mean, it's been the, 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 the original version, which was just about really uncertainty. And most of the research that's in the book was also there. And a lot of the writing was also passages of the writing were also pulled from the earlier manuscript. I mean, that, that's kind of what I want to talk about as well, because it covers so much ground, like science, humanities, philosophy. Mm. How did you gather that material? I mean, I guess the, um, it made me think a bit of like Maggie Nelson's Bluette. Ever crystal like other poets have also taken this kind of I know like kind of writing like how how yeah, does definitely. I know what you mean how why did because <laughs> it's not like I'm writing the life you know the the life of the forgotten courtesan of the court of you know so and so um or like field marshal you know winkle picker or whatever there's no kind of like um ready made container or, or remit for a subject like uncertainty is so huge it's potentially kind of endless and, and that's that's also what's interesting about it you know that um so I, I sort of just kind of looked around I thought like I actually I looked for the I looked for areas of certainty first I thought like when you look around the sort of popular conception of the things that we can rely on what actually are they you know and um, there are things like, oh well, I'm I'm in I'm in my body, you know. That seems relatively kind of work a day, um, um, like certain stable. And then you realise that you know your your body is like the cells of your own DNA are vastly outnumbered, like perhaps even to like one to ten, um, outnumbered by foreign bacteria, the sort of clever imported yogurt of your you know inner workings. And then you realize that some of your brain cells will outlive you. And then you also start getting into things like post-humanism. So that's another theme in the book. What about like, can you, if you were uploaded um, onto a computer, is that possible? Are you still yourself? So, so something like the way in which self responds, you know, is, is situated within a bodily reality. Is that, that seems, seems to be something that could be, you know, well, that's an area that could be poked at. Um, things like time. I mean, like we have, we live in a kind of fairly, again, like workable, everyday, popular idea of time as being something pretty regular and empirically measurable. And 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 then you look at time, and actually, oh, surprise, surprise, it's not. I kind of knew, actually, I knew that everything that I thought of as being relatively kind of certain would have a strand, would have a limit. And, and, I, and I also quite quickly realised, and this was one of the surprises, I suppose, or one of the things, the, big, the bigger realisations, that that's largely because of the limited machinery of the human mind. Like, I mean, human minds are, are various as well, but um, there is a fundamental limit to what the brain can do. I mean, it's, it's not that uh, Lakov and, and Nunes, the two neuro, uh, yeah, neurologists and um, they're cognitive scientists. 
they say the brain is not an all the mind is not an all-purpose device and that for me was like a real shock and an amazing kind of realization a free a really liberating realization actually that of course it's like actually more natural for us not to know things we live in this tiny 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 corner of space we've evolved very specifically to survive with 10 newtons of, of gravitational force you know um with different with a kind of really relatively stable set of climate conditions we're very like the if you look at the history of the earth it's like this and then like this tiny like carpaccio slice of time at the end like if you then like take the last thrust of that you've got all of human time on earth mm -hmm. so yeah you think like the brain you know what's how's that supposed to do you know there's obviously it's obviously not gonna know anything like it it can do pretty we're doing a great job of, of knowing the world for ourselves but beyond that it would be like asking my now nearly four-year-old daughter to to explain the stock exchange you know but even more like bigger than that it would be like the fundamental limits of the human mind it's a big surprise and and, and, it, and it kind of also suddenly realized made me realize that whatever i looked at i'd find a limit i'd find the point at which knowledge stops um and knowledge has to stop that it can't be known that there's always going to be the unknowable beyond it yeah, exactly and i think i think that would lead to my next question because one of the things we were talking a bit about how central to the book uh seems to be the idea of the structure of black holes and absence and how that creates a kind of paradox of reality and that uncertainty isn't just uh, a, a topic that you are exploring it's also a kind of poetic form in a sense yeah. that you're writing into you know because i do think that the, the, the central of the book is primarily really you and your daughter but then you're inside this universe around the black hole um could we hear you get an extract of the book where you speak about black holes. Yeah. Well, first, probably what I should do is is, is hold up this little picture. Oh, yes. 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 So yes. This is a question mark in the middle. I, I think it's inverted um, for you at home. This is just a picture of like an absence. You, you see, so how would you know that that's there? Well, because of all the business, the material that's kind of oscillating or being drawn towards it, which is like a kind of big. And that structure is a big analogy for the book because you can talk about a person, like who are we, as a fundamental question. And how do you know a person? Well, you can never really fully know a person, but you can sense who a person is as a kind of like question by the kind of stuff that happens around them, that they enact and the, the, the kind of gravity, the gravitational force. And, th and then I also use this kind of um thinking around a poem, you know, what's the meaning of a poem? Well, the meaning of a poem is obscured, but we can sort of, we know what a poem or we can feel or experience what a poem is about by the kind of associative movement um, around it. Yeah, and which is the same as a black hole. So a black hole is a poem, is a, is a person. Um, later on, I, I talk about a funeral in these terms, that there's a kind of the, the, the dead person is absent and they're this central absence around which the mourners are kind of drawn and by this gravity of that that negative presence and, and, and drawn into oscillation. So that's a kind of big like way of thinking for me about this. But yeah, the um, 
bit about black holes. So maybe I just described it. There's a little bit in here when I sort of talk about what a black hole is. In the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, of the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is about 26,000 light years from Earth. It is thoroughly obscured by large clouds of dust. No information that we could perceive with the naked eye can ever reach us from beyond that vast cosmic weather front. However, a German astronomer, Reinhard Genzel, turned to the measurement of infrared radiation as a means of exploring the galactic centre, because although it has a wavelength beyond our visual range, so you can't see it, um, it can penetrate space dust. Highly precise infrared radiation data that Genzel's team collected throughout the early 90s and early 2000s enabled them to measure and eventually chart the velocities and orbits of the stars closest to the galactic centre, and so build a description of what is there. They found a truly extreme environment where the velocity of the orbiting stars was so great and the mass of that region so compacted that there could only be one explanation. Our galaxy is organised around a supermassive black hole, Sagittarius A for the star, I don't know if it's Sagittarius A star, with a mass of more than four million times that of our own sun. Since then, an enormous amount of evidence has been gathered to support the theory that far from being unique, our galaxy is comparable to our neighbouring large galaxies in the sense that they too have a supermassive black hole at their nucleus. If all the large galaxies in the universe have a supermassive black hole at their centre, then these huge phenomena taken together can be viewed as a grand parliament. Our own municipal representative, Sagittarius A, has overseen the relatively stable conditions in which all intelligent life that we are aware of has evolved. All human knowledge, activity and experience is derived from the circumstantial conditions created by an object that we humans can never experience directly and that will always keep the, fund the fundamentals of its nature hidden from us. A black hole is a perfect analogy for uncertainty, for how life and reality transcend intellect. Our entire existence depends upon these points in space where mass is compressed infinitely inwards to an essentially unreachable centre, unreadable in any of our languages, and yet we know they are there because of that which they draw into their orbit, which we can read and interpret. Instead of speaking of, of, of objects at the centre of large galaxies, we could say that such a galaxy describes to us the uncertainty at its centre by the activity that performs about it. I won't give another description of the black hole, but I will talk a little bit, a little section that precedes this, which is about the word about. So this is where the comparison between the black hole and the, the poem are made. I'm often asked what a poem is about, and it always feels reductive, like the person asking the question is demanding I offer an alternative snappier version with a clearer, more direct meaning. They do not trust the poem, or they do not trust themselves to trust it. But I try to remember that we talk about moving about something to mean around it. Almost errantly, one strolls about the park or dances about the room, and how easily, in this sense, a poem can be about its subject. About is also used to mean approximately. It qualifies an amount with a caveat which is a paradox, since something cannot be both a certain amount and an uncertain amount. 
And again, the way in which a poem might be said to be about a tree, for example, approximately acknowledges the way in which a poem simultaneously measures and approximates the subject. So a poem is kind of about its, its negative, obscure centre, and in the same way that a black hole is kind of about its nucleus. And when I talk about black holes later, um, and to sort of describe what's happening in a black hole, um, which I won't go into now, it introduces this term, the singularity. Um, and a singularity in black holes is, is the point in which kind of all maths and all description of, of basically Einstein's general theory of relativity breaks down. It doesn't work there. It's a point of where um, the mass of the black hole is, is occupying an infinitely small space um, and therefore kind of compacting to an infinite density. And when the general theory of relativity tries to describe that, it just ends up with infinity, which for a mathematician is kind of fine, but for a physicist, it's a nightmare because it doesn't exist in reality in infinity. So anyway, um, but yeah, this is kind of, I'm just trying to kind of clarify that. You can think of what a singularity, that point, that absent point around which stuff is um, happens, <laughs> then then you're able to talk about poems and babies and black holes all in the same breath. Brilliant. Thanks, Jack. Um, <laughs> well, yes. thank you for your talk. <laughs> um, so I guess I want to move on to talking a bit about how interesting it was to me, I suppose, as a friend reading this book, someone who has some insight into you as a person, you know, as well as as a poet and a writer, like uh, some of it felt reluctantly written particularly the things where you get emotional, particularly the things that are personal. So I wanted to bring that up. I wanted to talk about mental health, self-care. Is this something that you practice? And were there points in the book where those bits where you're, you're, you talk quite, um, quite openly about struggling with anxiety? Um, so was this something that you were afraid of writing about um, is my hunch right <laughs> in that sense? Yeah, I was a little bit scared because because I suppose I in, in poetry I've always really made free and liberal use of that lyric like lyric distance that I'm never I'm I there's I'm not me in my poems there's a um, there's the speaker and I kind of I've, I always like that separation I think it's vital actually to what a poem is that that we don't just kind of reduce them to these kind of biographical reports I think that diminishes poem's possibility so I've always like naturally inclined to defend that right to be not yourself in your work and maybe that's also why I was like relatively resistant in this way when people you know to when people were saying oh maybe you should make this book about fatherhood you know the the the, the original draft of it ended with a section actually ended with with Nancy's birth so um, and they were like, well, I mean, really like this writing that you, about like parenthood. Um, and in the end, in the rewrite of the book, that last chapter became the first chapter. So um, it begins with her being five weeks old. I was and I was resistant to that. I was like, oh, OK. I, you know, I knew that I, I wasn't able to sell this book. You know, it was rejected everywhere. And I knew that that was kind of way it felt like a, it felt like a little bit of having to lean into what I knew would be a more positionable, sellable, marketable kind of idea, you know, 
a book about uncertainty. Well, what's that about? Too much. A book about uncertainty and fatherhood. You know, this is what sales teams kind of fed back and editors fed back. So I was reluctant to. But then when I did start writing, I recognized that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't lie. I wasn't limiting, actually, access to the ideas of the book in the same way that I, I feel that like I would be doing if it was a poem. I think that, that biographical connection and that disclosure um, can limit a reading of, of a poem, or at least I feel like it limits my, a reading of my poems. But with this book, I felt like it opened it up a bit. I, do, I feel yeah. like I've, I've talked, and I've avoided your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even that, like... <laughs> reluctantly answering it by not answering it <laughs> okay. well in that case i'm gonna i'm gonna di- redirect us back to the book there's a really powerful scene in the book where you talk about leaving uh the place in which you were born and then you return and you return for a funeral uh yeah would you mind giving that a read from the book yeah that's that's a slight confusion of two scenes I, i'm glad that you said it's in the funeral section but it's a kind of it's a funeral yeah. kind of I get that there's other stuff happening. Funeral for death, I think, that bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got, like, a couple of sections here on the kind of mental health aspect. <laughs> so it starts with kind of, I suppose, talking about panic attacks, actually, and fear, which is a big part of the book. And it's in this section about funerals or the idea of what a funeral is. Okay, yeah, I think I can I can truncate it. It's a difficult book to read from because the sections are so connected, but also disconnected. So anyway, I'll do my best here. When you were a newborn, we were told that, like with all newborns, there was a small chance you might stop breathing. Most likely this would happen when you were asleep for no known or particular medical reason. We were given advice and a number of recommendations based on the statistical evidence gathered from past circumstances of sudden infant death syndrome. But we were also told that even if we followed every recommendation, it could still happen anyway. The only reassurance was that it probably wouldn't, which of course is no reassurance at all. I have never recovered from that fear. It fucked me up, irreparably. At first, I found it impossible to go to sleep. Listening to you breathing and breathing, I would drift in that awful, tense, vigilant state, then checking my phone, I'd find I'd entered another hour. When I did sleep, it came so fast, was so heavy and dreamless, that I would wake with a start to a quiet room, panic heaving through my chest like a wave raking shingle from the beach, holding it and holding it until finally I found you. Your breath so soft and quiet, I could only discern it by the barely audible movement of your blanket rising and falling. Relief, my favourite emotion, the wave breaking. Because I couldn't trust you to stay alive and I could not stay awake forever, there was nothing else to do but say, so be it, and force my face onto the pillow. It felt like leaving you outside the city walls, like wading down into the reeds to float you off downstream. I grieved. I grieved for you, but also at the realisation that my whole life would now be bent to this task of giving you away, offering you up from our life and into the widening jaws of your own. What a cruel fucking trick. If I'd not been so exhausted and anxious, I would have raged, sobbed. I'm learning to live with the fear. It is huge, architectural, 
orchestral my fear for you. I've been flooded with new histamines. And although my mind and my body are only very limited tools for your care and protection, I have pledged them entirely to that function. For months and months, I was so catastrophic and alert for threats, which were largely the invention of my own dark imagination, that I was ha quite happy to wake at two hours, two hour intervals. It was an excuse to check on you, to lift you close and carry you to your mother, who fed you while I sat up beside her, calling her name if she started dropping off. When you started sleeping through, I found myself waiting in the dark, anticipating a cry, or else I shuffled about the rooms of the night, both the rooms in my head and those in the flat. I was furious with myself for not being able to stop the unspooling, to stop myself gnawing and grating the compacted terror at the base of my skull. But now I'm a veteran. I know when I need to get up, know to ignore my phone and try and read poems by lamplight, the more obscure the better. I know when a panic attack is coming, like the drop in air pressure ahead of a downpour. I've been to the doctor and pleaded with him to cure me of my numerous incurable phantom diseases. I've begged myself to cry for a release from the stress of it and found only a feeling that I'm falling forwards. I have brokered a deal with my, my reflection in the kitchen window at night to try and be happier and saluted myself with another glass of cold December water from the tap. I really had myself worried for a while back there and thought a bit. Funerals are not to do with death or dying, or at least not the ones I've been to. Funerals belong to the living, since the dead do not attend, not really. At the end of a life, we try to weigh it, see it, know the person more wholly in their absence. It is the absence of the deceased that sets the mourners into motion as they talk and move and think about the dead person who now only exists between them. I think about Reinhard Genzel and his team, whether they could chart the movement of mourners drawn about that absent centre. Maybe that's what a funeral is, a way of describing and charting the departed by such coalescences now that we cannot reach them or encounter them directly with our senses. I've often been struck by the way that funerals bring together a fuller spectrum of people to one place than tends to happen in life. Work colleagues weeping alongside childhood friends and family, a new neighbour passing an order of service along to an incognito ex-lover. We perform ourselves so differently to the different people in our lives and yet at our funerals, there they all are, our panel, our audience, our conference. It is an unrealistic portrait on account of its holism. In life, we are rarely so broadly triangulated. But the description given of the deceased by the ceremonial language of the funeral with its pressurization of emotion into slow ordered increments, like a kind of grammar, nevertheless affords a rare and distinct articulacy. We might not have been all the versions of ourselves known to the people we knew all at once, but we were still all those versions. And isn't that a more honest appraisal of what personhood is than the one that sees us as consistent, reduced, median or mean? Two years before you were born, your mother and I traveled back to the village where I grew up to visit your grandparents and watch the local firework display. We just received the news of a close friend's terminal diagnosis. The fortnight before we'd attended the funeral of another friend who had killed himself. It felt as if the world was more permeable, as if one thing might bleed or disappear into the next. 
I couldn't do up my coat tight enough. He stood around in the dark as the crowd gathered, people I recognised from the village, my old neighbours, faces I remembered vaguely from school, now adults. Then my brother, your uncle, and his wife, your auntie, arrived with your two cousins, and we chatted, and I asked the boys questions about their ear protectors and Wellington boots, and all of a sudden, the firework display started, and everyone looked up together. People moved into lines to stand and watch as the great argument played out above us. Each of us stood in our own unique little spot on earth. Without saying or doing anything, we declared ourselves in our unfathomable, unfathomable relation to one another. It was a funeral and a poem, looking up at the same thing, the unreasonable effectiveness, the language of life in describing itself without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Um, yeah, so three little sort of dis different sections jammed together there. <laughs> oh, beautiful, Worked really well, really well um, put together. I just wanna, because um, I'm, I'm aware that we're coming towards the end of the hour, I really yeah. wanna talk about one of the strands of the book which really impressed me and moved me, which was how you write about masculinity and you kind of go in by talking about feminist theory and and the performativity of kind of masculinity and um probably one of my favorite sections of the of the whole book is the silliness and intimacy <laughs> i was just looking at some of the questions we got coming in and some people asked like you know are there any funny parenting stories are there any <laughs> tender moments so i'm sensing perhaps a, a yearning for like because people who know you know that side of you as well, you know? So, and, and I think one of the things that really moved me about how you write about masculinity in that section is it, because it, for a book that's so much about knowledge, for me, that sections like that are kind of more than knowledge. They read as wisdom, mm. you know, as earned wisdom. But yeah, which is, a, which is a, a, a powerful thing. So I was wondering, um, if I could just request that from you, just to, let's to hear some of your silliness and intimacy, um, and <laughs> yes, then yes. share share the audience. It's really important to me, and um, and I do think that it's a kind of yeah, in relation to masculinity in particular. And I know we were talking about this in the run up to this event, and how the sort of tiring narrowing that masculinity, normative masculine ideas place upon men you know that almost like gravity is kind of like an earnestness is and kind of like and having and kind of seriousness this probably is inherited from this sort of victorian i suppose idealized masculinity which is a huge problem actually the victorians really are to blame i think for so kind they really weren't great for the world and i think that silliness is an escape from that I think that when you, if you can be, and, and of course, like, it's not gendered, I'm silly mainly with um, women actually, but when you are kind of silly with another man, you kind of know that you're, what you're doing is removing any of that kind of implicit threat of mortal combat, which kind of underwrites our, you know, in these uh, transactions in this weird codified way in the work, way that I talk about in this, in the earlier chapter. Anyway, so I'll just read the fun bit because it is a bit fun, this bit. Silliness and intimacy. You are a deeply silly person. I'm so pleased. Welcome. 
We can all be chickens. We can all pull our trousers right up and strut. The hard work of getting you to stop, calm down, listen, be good, see danger where we see danger, done for the day. And now this silliness is our harbour where we can locate each other again. Thank God. I'm so tired of teaching you not to do things. Some days it seems as if all I've done is snap at you, get at you, let my impatience with your inexperience overwhelm me. It took an hour to get your shoes and socks on and you out of the house. And in the shop, you refused to stay in your buggy, growing angry and upset. And when I caved in and let you just to avoid a scene, you grabbed at shelves, tins and jars or hands grubby from the park, roaming over the vegetables, the fruit. And when you took a bite from the side of a pineapple while I was getting bananas, so then you took a bite from the pineapple while I was getting bananas, so I had to fucking buy it. This huge fruit with its ridiculous hairdo, too big for my basket. I placated you with a lurid magazine with its free plastic shit destined for the landfill, but I didn't care. I needed to get home to make dinner. I needed to get home through the rain. It was autumn and cold. I needed to get home so I could stick you in front of a brightly lit screen so I could chop an onion without being disturbed. So I could have a train of thought to myself for just five fucking minutes. And then suddenly you wailed and wailed from the other room. So I ran to you. I dropped the knife on the sideboard and ran in a panic. But all you'd done, ragged and tired, was to stand on the TV remote and switch to News 24. So I grabbed the remote to change it back to your cartoon. But every stage of the way, every button I pressed to bring up the home screen, to bring up the app screen, to select the continue watching tab, to select the resume option, you continued yelling, no, not that, no, that's not it, not that one, until I shouted, I'm doing it for fuck's sake, just wait, will you? My rage, like a bag of blood giving way, the guilt instant, the shock on your face, my dura, sweet little pineapple biter, and not like that, I promise, I'm silly, I even said it, silly daddy, I shouldn't have shouted, and I, and I let you say it too. So then I head back to the kitchen, my apologies tendered, my tenderness assured, my remorse like roadkill that I prod out and turn over in my mind. I stir the wooden spoon as long as I can before folding and turning from the stove, my hands over my face, my forehead against the fridge now, letting out the sigh I needed. Then the second sigh I needed even more, then the third long sigh that I must have gathered up inside me earlier, maybe in the park with the dog off its lead coming close boldly, or on the narrow pavement, the van doing 60 down our narrow street when I muttered, prick, instead of screaming at it like I wanted to. Maybe that was the third sigh, the remainder carried over, the slag from the oar, and then you're back there in the doorway. Daddy, can I have something to drink? Of course you can, my love. Kneeling down to hand you the cup, pushing back your fringe behind your ear. Not your fault, my fault. My eyes filling at the edges, there you go. It's so fucking hard, and I'm not a bad person, please understand. I know that anger and remorse are a noxious pattern. We both have our limits, and I try, I really fucking try. So you see, it's important that after all that, all the terseness and stress, that you watch me take these long strides across the room with my index fingers pointing out from my chest the nipple antennae. That with my nostrils flares and my eyes crossed, it matters to me that I do a stance and say, what do you think about this stance? You try, fantastic. 
So please do jump off the sofa onto the cushions shouting panks, whatever that means, and do wiggle your bum and laugh at me laughing. Maybe in all the excitement you'll let out a fart. Bravo, not, not bad for an involuntary one. You have 20 minutes before bath time and I'm so tired of being stern and alert and afraid on your behalf. Life is here in all directions. So feast, you daft little cherub. There is practically nothing in life better than being incredibly silly. And I will not deny you. I refuse to deny you. This is our valve. Your hand is on the faucet. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, I found that really um, moving. I haven't read that aloud before. So, um, oh, I was moving to see it and to hear it. It was moving to read it. I, I read this book on a plane and um, I found myself choking up several times. And that was one, one of them. Um, yeah, like I say, it's a really beautiful moving book. And those were, yeah. So, so at, at the beginning of this conversation, people may think, oh, we've got some like very kind of intellectual <laughs> exploration into uncertainty. And then you just kind of throw us almost at times off guard with these, yeah, really moving, intimate moments. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for sharing it with us. I'm also looking forward to the kind of conversations I'm going to have with other people about the book, about uh, our peers and uh, be able to, yeah, you know, and even speaking with you further about parenthood now that we're both kind of, you know, yeah, I'm just at the trenches. So I'm going to go to the audience questions. Um, there's a good question here from uh, Mia. From Mia. Uh, please tell us about the painting behind you which I believe is your book's cover as well. Yeah, this is the original painting, yeah. Um, I'm in a sort of shed outside. It's, it's my, my, um, my partner Hannah is a, is a painter and this is her studio. We built a studio at the end of the garden and um, there's various kind of studio related stuff and that's not very glamorous out here, but it's any place where I can be, I can talk at this hour so that Nancy can go to bed. Um, but I thought that would be that would be a nice like the only thing I had to hand to kind of window dress this particular corner. Um, but yeah, that she 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 went through a really lovely um, abstract phase around two years. Um, she's really confident with a brush um, and you know likes to dip in all the colours and it's you know there's no not much guidance there. Um, she's in a more um, representational phase now. She's very good at pot plants and jellyfish that sort of thing. And those people with like five fingers that she counts out with big circular palms, you know, it's really, um, they're very funny. Um, but yeah, the, um, the kind of, um, the abstract phase was amazing. <laughs> it was like, it's like having the tuning in the house or, or, um, yeah, or Cy Twombly or something. Um, so yeah, it was a natural choice for the, for the front of the book. Um, I, her mum, um, gave me the cover to my second, little mini collection solo for Master Voice Tenuous Rooms. Um so um it's a family business now. Family artist, yeah, brilliant. Um, <laughs> James Everson says, I'm looking forward to reading the book. Are there any poems about fatherhood or parenting that you particularly like? I think a good one that I didn't really realise was quite as about parenting as I uh, until I read it recently was Filling Station by Elizabeth Bishop. Mm. And it has this you know, um, actually, there's this, this really seems to be at the app, this, this mother who isn't visible in the filling station. Um, but there's like 
somebody waters all the pot plants or oils them. The whole place is covered in grease, but there's all these kind of touches of care. Um, and I don't know if like that, that reading also kind of seems reductive to me. Just, just say, oh, it's actually about the mother not being there. Someone lines up the, the, the cans, they say so, so, so. I think that's, it's kind of more about like care. Um, and, 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 and it's the saucy, and saucy, greasy sons who assist the father. There's this kind of <laughs> sort of siblings in that poem. This sort of family filling station, um, and I kind of like the familial um, feeling of that. Maybe um, I thought was kind of was kind of new to me, really. Um, or I found it kind of shocking. Oh, parents! I don't know. That's fine. We'll, we'll take that one. Yeah, I can't really think of anything. I mean, yeah, most of them are. Yeah. Most of them are written from the children about their dead parents. That seems like a cool angle. Yeah. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll take Elizabeth Bishop. Sorry. Yeah, Elizabeth Bishop. It's worth rereading in, that, in that, that light, maybe. James Clark says, Did this sense of uncertainty and the unknown change you more as a poet or as a parent? Yeah, I think I think poetry is already all was already a, a sort of place of uncertainty for me. I mean, right back to just knowing that whatever I think a poem is about won't always transact. I've been on the receiving end of some like hilarious misreadings over the years and poems that I thought were pretty straightforward in, in terms of like scenario. And someone says, oh, I thought it was about this, you know, and I and I love that tension of, of metaphor. So, and so, you know, that. The, the, all you're providing really is a kind of habitation for for the reader to really kind of make meaningful and and so that kind of uns the uncertainty inherent with that kind of poetic um, dynamic with an unknown other the reader um, has always been interesting to me and uh, I think has probably changed me and thinking about uncertainties changed me as a as a parent definitely yeah because I've been I think sometimes it just makes me think, oh, it doesn't matter if I, you know. But it also, yeah, it makes me question the kind of easy answers I give to my daughter. She said all the time, she's like, what's that? Or why does that? And I have to, you know, what are you explaining things? You think, do I give her the really simple answer? Do I lie and just say, oh, it's because it's broken, because it's convenient and we're trying to get, catch a train or something? Or do I, you know, say, I don't know, you know? Um, mm. And I've started being a bit more honest about that now, saying I'm not really sure. And, and that seems like a good, a good parenting. Um, so this next question, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce your name, but uh, how how it looks on the screen to me is uh, Bengal Sue Sirin. How did you find the discrepancy between the grand themes of fatherhood and the day-to-day -day reality of parenting? Any funny stories, etc. Parenting, there's a lot of bathos in it. I think what the initial, the first thing that happened was that we had Nancy was born by cesarean section. So down came the curtain and there it is with a sort of strange kind of candy cane Twizzler umbilical cord there, right? There's your child, you know, your brain explodes and then the curtain goes back up and they do that. And then they're like, right, that's you done, dad. Off you go. We'll see you, you know, up with your partner in half an hour. Do you know your way back to the ward? Yeah, sort of. Um, and then they deal with, you know, um, and that was so it's just like suddenly like jeoparded away. And I suppose that was a little bit like, oh, what? So now I'm just like in this ridiculous, this ridiculous gown 
um, these scrubs and they didn't have any um, overshoes for me. So I just had like a hairnet over both of my trainers. So there I am shuffling back to the ward with hairnets on my shoes to, to sit and wait, having um, to sit and wait to meet my daughter again properly. So, and from there it's been, yeah, like, I mean, you just, you regularly have like shit on your wrists. I mean, what, what can you say, you know, um, yogurt. Yeah. Just like, just the dignity of kind of, of just being like climbed over. And uh, I mean, I like all that stuff though, actually. I've never, I, I never really wanted it to be grandiose. I, I suppose that's what it is. And I never really, I, I never really had a big idea of fatherhood other than that kind of reality. I, I'm just surprised by the kind of relentlessness of it, actually. I suppose I just hadn't really thought about it. I thought, oh, they go to bed or, you know, and then you're, then you're you know, then you're fine. And you, you can do it. But actually, you know, you have to get them to bed. And that in itself, you know, saps all energy you had for the rest of the evening, really. So, yeah, I'd say that bath, bathos and like, yeah, the, the idea, you're constantly brought down a level, constantly forced to kind of deal with, Today is a good funny story. I'm going to meet somebody at two o'clock and I think I'll just quickly get lunch down and soup which she likes. She's eating tomato soup. And she just decided that she wanted to eat her soup sitting on my lap. So rather than telling me this, she just stood up in her chair with the soup and started kind of trying to climb across the table. So of course the soup is just pouring out. And I'm like, no, no, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she looked and then drops the soup and then the soup kind of falls and, and it, it's tomato soup everywhere and then and so I'm already like oh this is a nightmare I'm already late and and only when I got back in like four hours later did I to discover that the extent of the explosion of the soup had actually made it probably about 12 feet across the room and onto the top of the record player so it's kind of like that kind of a tomato soup explosion it's just a daily event that's, I mean, it's not particularly funny, but, but just like her brain, just thinking, oh, I want to get there, so I'm just going to do it, you know? And that, that having, having to deal with a kind of an agent of chaos like that is yeah. just, it's just, yeah, constantly, constantly brings you down a level. Unbelievable. Do you one more question? Or? Um, well, in fact, I think let's end with, um, if you've got the time, I would really like us to end with the last section of the book in which you, because we, we haven't spoken as much as I thought we would about the poetry that's in the book and the relationship between this book and your forthcoming poetry book, uh, which I don't know anything about yet, um, which I'm looking forward to knowing about. And reading. Um, Before we do that, Ray, because yeah. you're an expecting poet, and you've got you're an expecting parent, and you're already writing poems about your child. Could we hear one of your poems as my interlocutor? Is that? Oh wow! Uh... We got one to hand, or have I sprung that on you? <laughs> you can say no; it's fine. Yeah, no. Um, uh, yeah, I've got a book coming out called um, "All the Names Given," and like you. Just last week, I gave my first ever reading from it and got unexpectedly emotional about it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is, I didn't realize of, um, how much I've kind of opened myself up here. And, and, and it's in the sharing that I've kind of realized that. Yeah, but I feel, I feel like because we're so pressed for time, um, I'll, but yeah, I mean, the book is, uh, my book is called All Given, Given, it's out September 2nd. Um, only only like a week after yours is Jack. So hopefully 
people can pick up both of our books. That'd be they great. They can go to the LR, they can go to the London Review Bookshop and if, come away with a brace of, of, of poetry. I'll tell you what, Jack, if we could organize a, uh, a, a combined reading with both of us doing a reading from our next poetry books, that I, I would be honored. If you... Lovely. Yeah, no problem. Let's do that and I'll read this little bit. Um, and thank you, Ray, and thank you, everyone else coming. Poets are not special people. They don't experience things with a greater intensity of feeling, have more incisive, interesting thoughts. But they do write poems. I don't expect you'll be a poet. I'm bound to put you off the idea. But I hope you read poet poems and love them and use them to have and keep more of your life and know the world with a greater complexity by their uncertain way of holding, weighing, leaning, and asking for your participation. Mainly, I want you to know that poetry is not a frivolous hobby, a luxurious kind of sentimental gesturing towards yourself and your experiences, but the most deliberate and self-aware form of the poetic, an intrinsic feature of thought and language and cognition. The poetic, is a fundamental instrument of presence, of being and knowing. You're here. We're of its machinery. We're drowned in the barrel. I'm not being grand. The word is not the thing. The thought is not the thing. The thing is not the thing, at least not the way you know it. There is always metaphor, representation, creative foreshortening and equivalence, and the poetic refuses to deny it. You can follow every course of logic and eventually it reaches the edge of its system, numbers referring to more numbers, values corroding towards an endless inward measurement, an awareness of those edges, the limits of the system only situates you within it more honestly and more fully. You're so here now, and I don't mourn your cognitive wastefulness. I know that the further you travel into knowledge and language and reason, the more inevitably you will discover their edges, their frailty and hopeful uncertainty, so often hidden from view. Today, I got your big notebook out to see what letters your mum had taught you. Carefully, you drew a circle. Oh, you said, good. Then you drew a vertical line and a dot above it. Then you looked up at me and shouted, oi, your first written word. I hadn't known about this development. Your mother hadn't told me. Oi, as if writing had ignored you long enough as if you were elbowing your way into conversation. Maybe that's what a poem is, and oi, hailing us, hey, look, stop, here, this, me, a voice breaking through both singular and constituent, a plea not just for attention, but to be attentive. If I sit still, I can follow my mind down a nice long corridor. Coffee tastes bad, it's true, but it becomes so delicious to suffer it you will find that everything you love, you love poetically. You have to replace it with itself so that you can see it again. Dissonance, equivality, inflections rising and falling, a word pressed more firmly into context with a novel exactitude, a hand offered in place of a frozen lake, Dillahand, the sound of a phrase occupying its shape as if sprung from the mold that history poured it into. Emitting light, you are more alert in a forest clearing, your senses showing their working thoughts, progressing like a shirt being buttoned from the collar down. Have more, keep more, daughter, like the sandcastle, 
when I slid the bucket back on top and said, where has it gone? And you laughed a little nervously at the new game feel of it. And when I lifted up the bucket again, ta-da, the castle was the same. But, oi, look, I replaced it with itself. And while it stood, it stood for more. Where it stood for more, there, still, there it stands. Thank you everyone for coming. Thank you for supporting Jack and his astonishing not even this. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this time. I have, selfishly. Um, Jack, thanks so much for inviting me to uh, to enter this space with you. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it means a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ray, and thanks everyone for, for coming along. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.